Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. We are continuing our series on called Glory and Redemption as we journey through the Old Testament together and see God's glory and His desire for relationship with us that results in His plan for redemption. And so last week, we wrapped up the flood and Noah's Ark and saw just the things that unfolded, how terrible the world was before the flood, that every thought of mankind, every inclination was toward evil. And so God brought judgment upon all of mankind, save for Noah and his family. And we, so we see this desire on God's part to continue in relationship, to redeem and restore a people to himself. And Noah and his family were that redeemed family uh, that God had chosen. Now, and then after the flood, the things that we see, the conditions we find the world in, we see that God promises he'll never judge the world in a worldwide flood again. And so that promise is sealed with the rainbow, the beautiful rainbow that we see in the sky following a rain, uh, reminds us that God has promised he will never judge the whole world via a flood again. And then he leaves mankind, he leaves Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, with a command to be fruitful and multiply and spread out and cover the whole earth. God, for the first time, institutes the death penalty and says, if a man takes the life of another man, that man or woman's life will be forfeit. And then this is my favorite part of what happens, is that for the first time, God says meat is available for mankind on the menu. He approves of, of meat. And I know that we have differing opinions and choices as to how much or meat at all, but it's in Scripture I can have a steak or a cheeseburger or a hot dog. And I am so thankful for all of these things that God has given as gifts. I still like a good salad, but anyway. Uh, this, this is where the world is at by the time we get to the end of Genesis chapter 9. And so if you'll open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 10, or you can open up your Bible app and see the notes for this week. We are not going to read all of chapter 10. We're just going to kind of skim over it so you understand what it is that chapter 10 is trying to accomplish. But remember last week there was a genealogy that led up to Noah and his sons and prepared us for the flood. And that genealogy just traced a single descendant of each uh, mentioned person all the way down till we got to Noah. And that was what we call a linear genealogy, one that traces one line of people we see the thread of redemption woven down through different generations as God chooses a specific, in the case of these genealogies, man to bear or to have a son who would then lead to the next person in the line. So we have a, a linear genealogy there in Genesis chapter 5 and then later in Genesis chapter 11, the second part, we have a, same, a similar linear genealogy. But this one is what we call a horizontal genealogy genealogy. It is a table of nations. What we're going to see is how the earth gets from Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their, their wives, 
to being a fully populated earth with all kinds of different people groups and all kinds of different languages. And so this is the story of mankind spreading out after the flood. So if we were to look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, you open up your Bibles and see there, it says this, These are the family records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They also had sons after the flood. And so we're going to see in this horizontal genealogy the, the history of mankind spreading out and these three sons of Noah having sons and then the results of those sons having sons and, and, and the different generations. And so we see some summary passages in here. Chapter 10, verse 5, it says this about Japheth and his descendants. From these descendants, the peoples of the coasts and islands spread out into their lands according to their clans in their nations, each with its own language. So the descendants of Japheth were the ones that the Bible tells us that lived on the islands and they lived out in, in the coastlines. They were a, a seafaring people, if you will. And, and so when later readers of Genesis chapter 10 are trying to figure out how are we related to these people in this country over here? Well, we know that they're the descendants of Japheth. So we're not directly related in the same way that we are to other sons of Shem, but we're related to them through Noah. And, and that it is these descendants who spread out into their own lands and their own divisions and eventually have their own nations and languages. And then we see this repeated in chapter 10, verse 20, regarding the descendants of Ham. First of all, what a great name, right? Ham? Um, I, that's like Canadian bacon or... Uh, steak or why would you it, it doesn't mean that it's it's just it's a it's a hebrew word ham these are ham's sons uh, by their clans according to their languages in their lands and their nations so we see that japheth's descendants spread out into a certain area and then the, the scripture tells us that ham's descendants spread out into a certain area of the world and developed their own languages in their own lands and their own nations to rule themselves. And then in chapter 10, verse 31, we see this about Shem. These are Shem's sons by their clans, according to their languages, in their lands, and their nations. And so chapter 10 is simply recording how the three sons of Noah all began to have children, and their descendants began to spread out over the entire world and establish different nations and settle different areas of the world. And actually have different languages as well. And then finally, at the end of Genesis chapter 10, there's this verse. These are the clans of Noah's sons, according to their family records. In their nations, the nations on earth spread out from these after the flood. So Genesis chapter 10 is a horizontal genealogy that tells us how mankind spread out after the flood. Now, a couple of uh, men of note in these, these genealogies, in this table of nations. If we look in uh, chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, we see a man named Nimrod. And yeah, so if, if you were like me, Nimrod was a name you'd call somebody who was just kind of a dork or not so bright, right? That's, that's how Nimrod grew up. You Nimrod. Uh, but actually, when we read here in Scripture... Maybe you want to be a Nimrod, uh, just, just because when we see who Nimrod is and, and what he accomplishes. So chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, it says this 
about Nimrod. I told myself I wasn't going to forget. Um, here I am, though. Forgot my glasses. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, tells us about Nimrod. It says this. Cush fathered Nimrod. And so Cush was a, a son of Ham. Cush fathered Nimrod, Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. So if somebody were to call you a Nimrod now with this context, you're like, well, absolutely, thank you. <laughs> I'm a man of men. I'm, I'm a powerful dude. I'm a Nimrod. Um, and, and here's what it says about Nimrod and, and his authority, his power, and his strength. Uh, verse 10, his kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resin between Nineveh and the great city Kalah. Now, we all know where all those cities are, right? Uh, but but the, the thing is, is we see that Nimrod establishes these cities, and, and he is a great ruler. He's like a city planter. Now, when we talk about cities, it's important for us to wrap our head around the biblical word for city. When, when we see city here in the Old Testament, don't think skyscrapers and millions of people need to understand it's a place that by definition has a wall. And that's about the big and, and small of it. There could be 30 people living there, but it's got a wall. That's a city, a metropolis, because they have a wall that protects them from bandits and raiders. And it's, it's an established place. Now, many of the cities in this age would have been hundreds or thousands of people, maybe even tens of thousands of people over time. But to be a city was not to be an instant metropolis, but instead a center of commerce and culture that had its own wall. And so Nimrod goes and establishes these, these different cities. Now, I want you to just kind of store away the name Babylon... Because that's going to come up again in our story. And, and we're going to see that Nimrod here, it tells us, is the one who established Babylon. Okay? Now, second person to look at. Uh, Pegleg. No, Peleg. Um, Peleg here in, in chapter 10, verse 25. It says, Eber had two sons. One was named Peleg. For during his days, the earth was divided. Now, that's all it says about him, but it says, during his days, the earth was divided. So, as we see these two guys, and we understand a little bit about them, this genealogy tells us that Nimrod is three generations from the flood. He is the great-great-grandson of Noah. Um, it says he was a powerful hunter, he was a leader, he was a city builder, and the founder of Babylon. And why is that important? Because it's going to inform what we understand in chapter 11. It's going to inform what the story, the history that God tells us in chapter 11. And then Peleg, in, in verse 25, he's actually five generations removed from the flood and Noah. 101 years since the flood came to a conclusion is when Peleg is born. Now, his name means division. And it says, this is when the world was divided. Well, what does that mean? Well, chapter 11 actually gives us a better understanding of both Nimrod and Peleg. 
And so they're critical in this genealogy because they establish for us the timeline for when the events in the first half of chapter 11 occur. So now that we see this table of generations, we know that ultimately all of mankind will be spread out over the earth, that Nimrod establishes a place called Babylon, and something significant happened just right at the time Peleg was born, about 101 years after the flood. Now that we know that, we go into chapter 11 well-informed and ready to see this little bit of history unfold in its context. So let's look at chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And if you were uh, looking for like an historical date, uh, we could kind of peg this to about 2242 B.C. when this occurs right here in Genesis chapter 11. So Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, let's look at all of it together And then we'll go through verse by verse and try and understand what exactly is occurring here. So Genesis chapter 11 starts with, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city. And a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babel, or Babylon. For there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So, Genesis chapter 11 begins with this statement. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And you might go... But wait, I remember in Genesis chapter 10, it said they all had their own languages and lived in their own places. This is clearly a contradiction in Scripture, and so Scripture cannot be trusted. No, it's not the case. We need to understand something about the way that this book of Genesis was written. We've seen it already in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where the the overall history is taught and we see the big picture and then the next chapter kind of rewinds real quick and zeroes in on one specific aspect of what transpired previously. It looks like it's a different account altogether, but what it is, is a rewind and a replay zoomed in on some specific circumstances. And so chapter 10 tells us there's this big picture that Shem and Ham and Japheth, they started having kids who had kids who had kids who had kids. And eventually everybody spreads out over the whole world and has different languages in different nations and different standards and they're different clans and peoples. And that's what happens. 
chapter 11 rewinds and focuses in on one of the means by which God made that happen. In fact, the means by which God made that happen. So just like Genesis chapter 2 rewinds and goes back into the garden and watches God form Adam out of the dust and then breathe life into him, Genesis chapter 1 tells us God made man. Genesis chapter 2 shows us how. Genesis chapter 10 says everybody spread out. Genesis chapter 11 rewinds and shows how it happened. So we rewind and we see everybody on the earth has the same language and vocabulary. And we understand that this is likely within the first 100 years following the conclusion of the flood. Why? Because we have a dude whose name is Peleg, and his name means division, which means there is something that happens right around the birth of Peleg within those first hundred years that is significant. And so we look and go, here's a significant event. Let's see if this lines up with Peleg. Let's see if this lines up with Nimrod. And lo and behold, it will. Genesis chapter 2 tells us, or chapter 11 verse 2 tells us this. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. We think that, the, that Noah's Ark likely settled somewhere in um, the, 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 like Saudi Arabia or maybe Turkey, but somewhere in those areas. We're trying to nail it down still. Archaeologists are looking for it. But, but what we see is, is if we're looking, you know, over here is where Noah's Ark lands and over here is the valley of Shinar. And everybody starts migrating east. Why do they go that way? Well, because there's fertile land. And there's the, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The, the geology is much the same as it is today. The map looks much the same as it does today. Now, pre-flood, we can't nail down where anything is because God mixed it all up during the flood. But now, it's about the same. And so they go over and they're, they're settling in this, this uh, Tigris and Euphrates Valley, the Valley of Shinar, and they begin to settle in and they begin to live there. This is good land. This is where we want to be. And they say to one another, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. Now, this is, this is par for the course in this, this moment historically. They would have just made bricks out of mud and they would have used asphalt for mortar. Archaeologists have found buildings like this. We know historically this is accurate for this time frame. And so these people, they gather together. They say, this is a good place to live. Let's make bricks and let's start building a city. And they said, come, let's build ourselves a city. And in that city, we want a tower with its top in the sky. We, we want to build a tower so big, it's like scraping the floorboards of heaven. That's what we want to happen in our city. And then they explain why that is. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So what are their goals here as they look to build this city to build up this tower that scrapes the very floorboards of heaven. What are they looking to accomplish? They want to make a name for themselves, and they want to avoid being scattered. Now, the interesting thing about scattering is that it is actually 
something that was specifically commanded by God. He tells Noah and his sons this. In verse, or chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Be fruitful and multiply and stay in one place, but don't ever live anywhere else. No. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and then in verse 7, he reiterates it. He says it a second time. Now, when God says something once, he means it. When he says something twice, he wants us to remember it. And so he tells Noah and his sons, you be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. This was not a suggestion. This was not a, hey, it would be nice if you would. This is a direct command from God stated twice that mankind was supposed to be fruitful and multiply and live over the whole earth. Now, why is that significant? Because when we see what the people here in the Shinar Valley are trying to accomplish, they want to make a name for themselves and they want to avoid being scattered. We want to be important And we want to stay right here. Now we can see if God has commanded them to scatter out and fill all of the earth, this is a direct act of disobedience. And why do they want to make a name for themselves? Because they are seeking to to satisfy their prideful desires. We want to be important. And we don't want to obey God. I mean, can you see this? As, as this, this tower is being constructed, their whole intent is not, hey, let's build a nice city so when people come and visit, we can get tourist dollars and it'll really be prosperous. Instead, it is, we want to be important and we don't want to follow God's rules. And, and so this tower going up, this is not just a symbol of man's great ingenuity. This is not just a, a symbol of... of amazing people getting together, but it is instead a just screaming declaration of we are prideful and we are disobedient. We want to do things our way and God has no say in our lives. Now you you think, well, how does a tower say that? Because they have said specifically that's why they were building it, out of pride and disobedience. So what does God do? God has a desire for people to walk in obedience. He wants to be in relationship with mankind. And yet, here they are again in rebellion. We've seen it in the garden already, haven't we? We saw it in the garden when Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. And they rebelled against God and said, It looks good, it tastes good, and it will make me important. I'm going to eat the fruit. And they rebelled against God. We watch all of mankind, beginning with Cain, who had a very visitation from God, who said, Cain, watch out, sin wants you, but if you'll just walk with me, your life will be full of joy. And what does Cain do? He rebels against God, and he kills his brother. We see all of society falling prey to that, doing their own thing, doing things their way. And God's choice is to bring judgment through the flood and save only Noah. And so once again, this cycle repeats. 
God longs for people to walk with him in obedience, to be submissive, to be his people. And yet, mankind is already, after just a, a, a few decades, declaring their intent to rebel against God and actively rebelling against the king of creation. So what does God do? Well, you know, God could have just been like, done with y'all, tried twice now, three times, four times, I'm done, I'm out, I'm starting over, I'm God, I can do that. But we don't see God doing that. What we see God doing is something to try and quell, to push down man's ability to rebel. And not because God does not love man, but instead because of his great love for us, he sought to make rebellion harder. So what does he do? So the Lord comes down to the city. He looks over it. He sees the tower that the humans are building. And then the Lord says, if they have begun to do this as one people having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So we see that, that it hinges upon this one people having the same language. As we begin to be more populous, as we begin to think as a culture, as we begin to reinforce and encourage one another's sinfulness, God says, this people who are united together, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And some of us read that statement and we go, well, yeah, nothing's impossible if you just work hard and work together. But when we understand that God sees into our hearts, and he has reiterated and told us over and over again, this is what comes from inside of fallen man. The inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And so the more evil people you get gathered together in one place with one intent, what happens? More and more evil. Rebellion against God becomes the norm instead of the exception. And, and you know, we can, we can dive into pop culture right away and say, I see that. As our cultures turn away from God and turn towards the desires of mankind and our own scheming and dreaming and our own plans, we see that we can accomplish anything. And oh, what terrible evils we accomplish. Things that should be impossible for men and women become entirely possible as we rebel against God together. As we encourage one another to rebel against God. And so when God says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them, this is not God afraid that all of a sudden mankind will become godlike in our existence but instead it is God looking at mankind and saying the more people united together without right relationship with me the more chance there is for nearly unimaginable sin to become commonplace for nearly unimaginable rebellion to become the norm and so here's what God says come let's go down there we see a, a little bit of a picture of the Trinity right here again. When we see God speaking in the plural, this is not God and all his bud gods. This is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who have existed as Trinity from forever, 
There is never a time where they were not three in one. And so Genesis 11, 7 through 8, God says, come, let's go down there. Let's us, or let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Now, would you see this as a fairly sizable uh, activity that causes division in mankind? Peleg, division, about a hundred years after the flood, the Tower of Babel happens. The Tower of Babylon happens. And God looks at mankind in their rebellion and disobedience. And instead of judging again, instead of just crushing us under his thumb as we rightly deserved, he instead says, I will make it harder for mankind to sin. I'm going to squash their rebellion by separating them, if you will. You ever been around a group of kids and they're causing trouble? If you can't just beat them, what you can do then is to separate them. You, you send them to separate corners. You, you squash the trauma and the drama and the trouble and the rebellion by dividing them up. And this is what God does at Babylon. This is what God does at the Tower of Babel. The, the results of the tower, the results of God's activity there, it's to humble mankind, to, to, to show us we are not in charge, we don't have the authority, we are not like God, and then to scatter mankind out that they might be obedient to his commands. So there is a reckoning he brings to us to understand who we are, we are creation. We are to be in submission. He does love us, but rebellion cannot be tolerated. And then he scatters, because that was his desire. That was his plan, was to scatter mankind. So uh, chapter 11, verse 9 tells us this. Therefore, it is called Babylon. Some of your Bibles, if you have them out, they might just say Babel. It is the same root word, Babel, Babylon, and it, it simply means confused. Some of our translations say Babylon because they want us to understand that the Tower of Babel occurred in the city of Babylon. And it's a city that lasted for generations. In fact, what we're going to see in biblical history is that Babylon rises up through successive kingdoms and empires and continues to be a source of evil for God's people. So therefore, it is called, called Babylon for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. And so God confronts both their pride and their disobedience in confusing their languages and spreading them out. And that's where we are still today, isn't it? We are still speaking many different languages. We are spread out over the face of the earth and this separation is actually an act of grace from God. It's like taking disobedient kids and putting them in different corners of the room so that they don't cause trouble. God was, instead of bringing down the, the same judgment he brought down in the flood, he is instead separating the children and giving them time to cool off and time to listen and time to learn how to obey and walk without being in rebellion any longer. And so we can see 
in this, both the glory of God as he is able to do whatever he longs to do, whatever he determines, it is within his hands to do so. But we also see his desire for redemption. Instead of the judgment that we deserved at the Tower of Babel, God showed grace. God spread mankind out. God tried to tamp down the rebellion gently and lovingly by dividing up mankind into different tribes and languages. Now today, we can look at our culture and we can look at ourselves and we are still trying to build a tower. Some of us, we're trying to build a tower in our own life. We're trying to be men and women who we can be proud of and do things our own way. But if we look at our culture around us and we look at the way that things are, we can see a tower being built, not just in our own hearts and minds, but in our culture as men and women around us, they gather together, they go, I agree, let's do that. And then we find out that the inclination of their hearts is only evil. And they are today, they out there and we in here still must fight the desire to build up a tower based on pride and disobedience. There is still the move to, to try and be significant, to be important, to build a name for ourselves and to do it at any cost. Even the cost of rebelling against our Creator. And, and so as, as we look at these towers that are being built in our own lives and in the world around us, we have to remember that though it seems like progress at times, or that's what they want to tell us it is, we have to understand they are achieving great things. But in achieving those things, they are really just achieving great evil. Because when humans who are apart from God, who are in active rebellion against Him, when they build things together, it always results in towers of pride and disobedience. Because the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. It's, it's like somebody who, you know, kind of has a, a, a twist to their head building a house. Why does everything in the house tend to veer off to the left. I don't know, it looks straight to me. I mean, just, you see, when we are inclined to go off and to rebel against God, everything we do comes out crooked. And we are inclined to that evil. Now, the thing is, though, God gives us some clear words in Scripture regarding pride. Some clear words in Scripture regarding obedience. And so, as we look at this story, we should see ourselves, we should see our culture, and then we should dive into God's Word and understand that there are answers there for the very pride that would lead us to rebellion. There are answers there for, for the disobedience that would lead to us needing to be separated out and spread out over the world. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says this. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Now, I'm standing here and I just I fired this slide. And I look at that where I put pride in rainbow colors. 
And, and I, I want to repent, and maybe, maybe that's too much finger-pointing. Because the truth is, is that all of us, all of us, we want to be significant. We want to be important. We want to be in charge. We want to be accepted. And so I, I don't, not like this was a wrong choice, just maybe was a little heavy-handed. Because with every finger we point at somebody else, there's at least three others pointing back at us. But do understand, our culture is telling us we should be proud of sin. We should be proud of rebellion. We should be proud of doing things our way. We should be proud of our rebellion against God. And Proverbs says that very pride that the culture is encouraging us to, it is what comes into our life the moment before destruction. It is the thing that, that we rest upon when we are right on the precipice of falling into judgment. And so this very thing that we're being encouraged to this month, to be proud of sin, to be proud of rebelling against the clear teaching of Scripture, to be proud of, of standing up and, and telling God, you don't know what's right, we do, is the very thing that will lead to our downfall as a culture. It will lead to our downfall as individuals. This pride in our sinfulness. This pride in our greed. This pride in our success that we got at all costs. This pride in houses that are bigger than somebody else's or cars that are shinier than somebody else's. You see, it doesn't just end with homosexuality. That's only the most prominent reminder of our pride this month. But if we're earnest, there are many, many things we should be careful about when it comes to pride. When the Apostle Paul starts to talk about the fall of mankind in Romans chapter 1 and how mankind is evil and fallen, he does use things like homosexuality and the abandoning of, of those kinds of norms as like the, the pinnacle expression of pride and rebellion against God. But in other places, he lists things like anger, and drunkenness. He lists simple things like lying. And those are the kinds of things that are just as wrong and just as pride-filled and just as rebellious and will lead to fall and destruction in our life. And so the Tower of Babel reminds us, Scripture tells us, that the desire to be something is a desire that only leads to judgment. It only leads to trouble. Now, this pride in who we are, this pride in what's deep inside of us, this pride in our own ways, James talks about what it results in. What, what following our desires will bring about. And in chapter 4, starting in verse 4 through verse 10, James begins to tell us about rebellion against God, about pride. And he says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes not just unfriendly toward God, not just, you know, you're, you're in rebellion a little bit, but no, an enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. The very thing that we long for, this significance, this importance, that the things that we are building up towers of pride in our own life will result in our destruction. But if we walk humbly before God, He will raise us up. And don't you know that building a tower in cooperation with the world around you is making yourself an enemy of God? And so we must strive to be submitted and humble toward God and His Word. If we don't humble humble ourselves in submission to the Lord, what Scripture teaches us, what, what the Tower of Babylon teaches us, is that humility will be brought upon us in judgment. If we don't humble ourselves, God will make us humble. I would much rather it be the easy way than the hard way, at least in my life. And I hope for you as well to begin to look at what God's word says. And instead of standing up and saying, I want to be significant. I want to be important. I want to be in charge. You stand up and say, Lord, I am nothing without you. I will do as you say. I will walk in your way. Proverbs 24, verses 1 and 2, we talk about both avoiding pride, but also the value of who you hang out with, the importance of who you associate with. When we look at the Tower of Babel, why did the trouble compound? Because everybody was hanging out together, dreaming about evil things. So who we associate with matters. Don't envy the evil or desire to be with them, for their hearts plan violence, and their words stir up trouble. Who is evil? Anyone who is walking in rebellion against God. And so as believers, we shouldn't envy them, we shouldn't desire to hang out with them, because they do nothing but plan violence and stir up trouble. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says this, But actually, I wrote you, Paul's kind of refuting something that, that the Corinthians were claiming. They're saying we shouldn't hang out with anybody who sins. And Paul says this, No, actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. When we look at the world around us and people who are not Christians, what should we expect out of them? 
non-Christian things. When somebody says, I'm a believer, we should expect believer behavior out of them. And Paul says, if you have someone in your life that claims to be a Christian, but they're sexually immoral, they're greedy, they're an idolater, they're biblically abusive, they're a drunkard or a swindler, only hang out with them every once in a while. No. Don't even eat with such a person. Don't share a meal with them until they come back to Christ and repent of their rebellion. Why? Because he's going to tell us later on in the book of Corinthians, don't you dare be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't hang out with especially believers who are walking in sin and pride and direct disobedience because you will not be like them, or excuse me, you will not make them like you. Instead, they will make you like them. You will not be able to walk in their sinful ways and lift them up. Instead, they will drag you down. Now, Scripture does tell us we're supposed to confront sin and call people up when they're building their towers, when they're walking in disobedience against God, to say to them, hey, that's not right. I love you, but you need to fix some things. You need to get right with God. But when it comes down to joining in with them in their sins, we're not even supposed to eat with them because they will only drag us down. And instead of hanging out with people that we know will help us to build towers of pride and disobedience, we're supposed to be gathering together like this. Encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. We need other believers to encourage us. Hey, I, uh, I noticed you got a little tower going there. <laughs> yeah, maybe... Um, Maybe before God, maybe before God confuses things and spreads you out, maybe you should tear the tower down first. We're supposed to be encouraging each other and calling out pride and disobedience in a loving way to bring restoration. And then gathering together regularly. Later on, the writer of Hebrews says this, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Since he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. We as Christians, when we encounter one another, we're supposed to be provoking each other. Now, the word there is actually along the lines of a goad that was used to keep an animal moving when it was pulling a cart. So we're supposed to poke each other with sharp sticks so we'll be able to do the right things and live Christ-like lives. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the last days approaching. All the more you see the world crumbling around you. You see the world building towers of pride and disobedience. You anticipate the coming return of Christ in judgment. All the more we should be gathering together and encouraging each other. Who we socialize with and to what extent will dramatically affect our obedience and faithfulness to Christ. If we, like those in Babylon, gather together with others who are like-minded in their sinfulness, 
we will build towers and we will be disobedient and rebel in pride because that's the norm. But if instead we gather together on a regular basis with those who seek to tear down the towers of pride and disobedience and walk in faithfulness to God, we will be built up and we ourselves will be obedient and faithful. A couple of applications as we wrap up this morning. Some things for you to remember as you read the history of the Tower of Babylon and seek to apply what you see there to your own spiritual life. First, it's so important to remember that God showed such grace even as he revealed his glory. That he sought the redemption of mankind. He tore down their languages and he scattered them out because he wanted to see them walk in obedience to him. And how do we bring that home to us? I want you to think about how do you tear down the towers in your own life and humble yourself before God in submission to his commands. Now, the expectation is not that any of us are perfect tomorrow, but that all of us are growing in Christ-likeness and perfection as we age. And then the second thing, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, you don't stop evangelizing the heathen, the broken, the lost, right? We, we go out to them, we hang out with them. Jesus hung out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. But when Jesus went to hang out with them, do you know what he did? He said, repent and believe. He didn't say, hey, everything's cool, just be you. You do you, I'll do me. Repent, believe, trust in me. I want to encourage you, choose your friends wisely, those that you associate with intimately, not the ones you're seeking to evangelize, but the ones that you are uh, relying on to help you do the right things in life. Choose your friends wisely, especially if they call themselves believers. You must hold them to the standards of Scripture, even as you expect them to hold you to the standards of Scripture. Choose your friends wisely. They will help you accomplish what you imagine together. If you are with friends who are imagining the kingdom of God coming to pass in their own lives and lives of holiness and walking with God as they go to work, as they go to Giant Eagle, as they go to the park, as they go on vacations, do you know what you will accomplish together? Holiness in every aspect of life. But if you hang out with friends who look at your sin tendencies and go, hey, it's okay because I've got some sin too. You don't condemn mine, I won't condemn yours. Cool. You don't tell me about my tower, I won't tell you about yours. That's the kind of friend that will lead to destruction. That's the kind of friend that will lead you away from faithfulness to Christ. So humble yourself first. And then seek out others who have humbled themselves before God. And encourage one another to righteousness. Because all of this should bring us to a place where we see the glory of God in one another's lives as he redeems and restores us. And we see from the very beginning of creation, his desire was relationship for us and with us. And in all of these moments of rebellion over and over again in the Old Testament, what we're going to see is God graciously seeking to draw us back. Now, of course, the first and most important act of submission that anyone can make is to look at themselves honestly and say, I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against God. And in my rebellion, I have earned 
punishment. And the right and just punishment of God, if he were to punish me for the sin, the rebellion in my life, would be to send me to hell. Would be to condemn me to death. Just like he did those in the flood, just like he will others like cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and other places, Ai. That he condemned them all to death justly for their sinfulness. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. And the first act of humble submission is to recognize that, but also to understand that God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. The second person of the Trinity. He was perfect human and perfect man, and he walked a life without sin and then gave himself on a cross as the sacrifice for your sins and mine. He died in your place. He took your judgment. He absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf based upon your rebellion. And he died on that cross and he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose again to prove that he really is the Christ, the son of the living God. And when he says, I can forgive sin, guess what he can do? He can forgive sin. Now, what's the condition for the forgiveness of sin? Believing on him as your Lord and Savior. Turning your life over to him. And saying, just as you long for, I will be yours, and I will trust in your guidance and direction. And of course, there's, there's steps to take. We, we, of course, encourage everybody, if you've made that profession of faith, to, to move on into to growing steps of faith, including regular attendance, including belonging to a small group. Why? So that you can grow in Christ. So that you can be all that God desires for you to be. Not because of some rule or some, some legislation from on high. And so, as we look at this submitting ourselves, it begins with salvation and it continues. And we're blessed when we have one another to grow together and encourage each other. So as the worship team makes their way up this morning, I, just, I want you to think about, are you a Christian first? Have you made that first step? Have you humbled yourself before the Lord, recognizing your sinfulness, His sacrifice, and turning your life over to him. And if you have, are you building any towers today? Are there places in your life full of pride and rebellion where you're trying to do things your own way and have a name for yourself? Are there towers in your life that you need to start tearing down? Are there towers in the lives of your friends or loved ones that you need to start graciously confronting them about and saying, I see your tower there. It's not going to accomplish what you thought it would. Can I help you tear it down? But to begin today to understand the glory and the possibility for redemption through our Christ Jesus and all that it can mean for us as we submit to him in humility and obedience. Do you have a tower? Are there towers you need to help others attack? Or do you need to take that first step and turn your life over to Christ? Let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this time. We know that your word contains so much, and it's so easy to get excited. And, but help us to absorb these truths, not just to, to see, wow, what an amazing story, and how your word weaves together history and truth. But help us to bring it home, to apply it to ourselves to be convicted about our own pride and our own disobedience, to look at the towers in our own lives and not just point to the towers 
pride and disobedience to the world around us, because there are many. But instead, to, to look at ourselves and to tear down our own towers and to help others that we love and care for in Christ tear down the towers in their life so that we can walk in obedience, so that we can be a shining light for the world around us and maybe just possibly by your grace begin to call out individuals by our witness and allow them the privilege of having their tower torn down and to know humility and love from you. Open our hearts and open our minds. Help us to be gracious and generous to others.
been faithful and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that I am able I will see of the goodness of inspire you to tear down the towers, to lovingly gather together with others and encourage one another to tear down the towers, but also to come to Christ on a regular basis for the first time or for the hundredth time in a day, to come to him and know his goodness, to know his ways and to walk with him. Everybody's invited to join us for lunch downstairs. If you didn't get a name tag, grab one before lunch, if you will, just so we've got that available to call each other by name and love on one another. We've got our regular studies and stuff this week. The only thing different will be men's breakfast this coming Saturday, 8 a.m. to 9.30. We'll be meeting in the large classroom. We have an event, a family event. It'll be later in the day on Saturday, so the uh, fellowship hall will be decorated. So men's breakfast will be in the large classroom. I encourage all the guys of the church to join in as we wrap up the Ephesians study this coming Saturday. So God bless you guys. If you have any questions or need to talk or pray, I'll be available at the front. And also, kids who have been doing the sermon notes and turning them in, I have uh, our prize list for, uh, well, this year up until the end of April. So you, y'all, if you have figured or uh, filled out any of the sermon notes, come get your prizes for those sermon note completions. So God bless you guys. Love you. See you throughout the week and next Sunday.